stay tuned for our part two of our conversation about Christian polygamy next on Polygamy, What Love Is This? Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. It seems that the lines are blurred about sexuality in our culture these days. It seems like almost any kind of sexual activity is is okay just as long as the parties involved agree and, and sometimes it doesn't matter if they don't agree. But if we believe the Bible, which is what Christians are supposed to do, we are wise if we consult what the Bible teaches regarding decisions, including our sexuality. There's a strong movement in our country and even in the so-called Christian community that claims that because polygamy is described in the Bible with no condemning terms that it's all right for Christians to practice polygamy. There are several websites that a person can find just by Googling the topic, and those websites are full of information justifying the idea that polygamy is okay with God, so Christians can just go ahead and do it. We read an email on our show last time from a viewer who asked us to review some of these websites and to do some shows to answer the question about Christian polygamy. So this is part two of our series and is a topic that we discussed in many past programs, actually. We want to begin this time, however, with a quote from Leviticus chapter 18. It's a chapter that goes into great detail about sexual behaviors that God condemns, and then God says this about people who do them. This is verses 24 through 30. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sins, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born and the aliens living among you among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all the things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such persons must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements and do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came, and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God." Now that's, yeah, that's a big wow. These condemned and detestable and defiling practices included polygamy. And also many of the practices that some polygamists observe, like incest and a man marrying sisters and also marrying a mother and and a daughter and so on. Well, God has condemned them. Just read the entire chapter of Leviticus 18 and you'll be amazed and hopefully shocked. So God has condemned polygamy in the Bible and he doesn't have to say it more than once before it becomes valid. It just isn't Mormon polygamists who use King David as a biblical example for polygamy. And when they do, it merely shows that they cannot understand the scripture 
or God's working with King David or any sinner for that matter, nor do they recognize David's repentance of polygamy and of the Bathsheba affair and the murder of her husband Uriah, which is the key to understanding God's dealing with David's sin of murder, adultery, and polygamy. Many arguments for polygamy will reference where the Bible says that David did what was right, that he was a man after God's own heart, which they say proves his polygamy was okay with God. We have a couple of quotes. Yeah, they're both that. from 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 3 and 11. It says, He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his forefather had been. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. So we see that's the <laughs> kinds of verses that they're using to say, well, David practiced polygamy, so it must have been okay. Look what he said about David. Well, David was a man who was guilty of great sins, but he also refused idolatry of which many of the other kings were guilty. And the context in which David is referenced as doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord is almost always his refusal to be involved in idolatry. And this is very important. David repented of his sexual infidelities. His repentance is recorded in Psalm 51. He was truly broken, convicted, and sorry for what he had done, and will explain. The prophet Nathan came to David and brought him face to face with his own sin regarding Bathsheba, uh, I think which everybody is pretty familiar with yeah. it. And this is what happened when David responded to Nathan. Yeah, this is in 2 Samuel 12, 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. So before God can take away the sin, the repentance has to be genuine. Wow. And, and David had practiced polygamy, but he turned from it in real and deep and sincere repentance, and God forgave him. Most polygamists miss this very important biblical event. And God promises that he will no longer remember our sin after we genuinely repent, genuinely repent. And that was why God could say that David was a man after his own heart. And he proved that his repentance was genuine when he returned to Jerusalem. After meeting with Nathan, David ended his relationship with his harem and his concubines. And here's the passage that tells about it. Yeah, 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 3. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them, but did not lie with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. So... Yeah, so that was that was the end of his harem. David knew he had an obligation to provide for his women, for his former women, but they know he they he no longer cohabited with them. Right. He continued in marriage to Bathsheba as his only legitimate wife. Repentance always involves change, turning from your way and taking God's way. He was a man after God's own heart. David followed through on his change of heart by ending all practice of polygamy in his life for the rest of his life. And just like Abraham provided for Hagar and sent her away, David did the same with his concubines. And all polygamists would do well to have a heart for God's way and do the same thing. That'd be interesting. It would be interesting, wouldn't it? 
Solomon is uh, is another favorite biblical example that polygamists use to justify Christian polygamy and Mormon polygamy yeah. too. You can find his story and what God thought about it in First Kings chapter eleven verses one through fourteen. But the Christian polygamy websites ignore the very focus of the passage, which is that Solomon's many women led him astray by turning his heart away from God. Well, that's precisely what happened before the flood at Noah's time that we talked about in part one. But let's quote from the biblicalpolygamy.com website. Yeah, this is very interesting. Both David and Solomon are getting the same bad rap. In David's case, we're asked to overlook the plain prohibitions against murder and adultery and the plain teaching of the scriptures that these were David's crimes in order to read into the text a polygamy problem, even though polygamy is not condemned in Scripture and David is not criticized in Scripture for it. In Solomon's case, we're being asked to overlook the plain prohibition against marrying foreign women and the plain teaching that this is what he did wrong. Again, to read into the situation a problem that isn't there. Well, we have to ask him, what about the plain biblical teaching that Israel's kings were not to take many wives in Deuteronomy 17, 17? And don't forget Leviticus 18. Now, their normal answer to De Deuteronomy 17, 17 is to ask, well, just how many wives are many wives? Their argument begins with Deuteronomy 17, 16. And so we quote that in context. Yeah, here are these two verses. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Okay, so there's the context of God telling the kings what they should and shouldn't be doing. Now, their, their re, pro-polygamy reasoning is, well, how much gold is too much gold? <laughs> how many horses are too many horses? And how many wives are too many wives? Well, gold represents riches. Horses represent power and prestige. And, of course, wives, many wives, represent sexual pleasure. God is telling their kings that they are not to indulge in money, power, and sex. Now, in this context, how many wives are too many? Well, God gave no command anywhere to own only a certain number of horses or of owning a certain amount of gold and silver. But there is a biblical command to have only one wife. God instituted and modeled only monogamy in the first marriage. Therefore, anything outside of monogamy is more than one wife is taking many wives, and more than one is too many. Too many. <laughs> one argues that Solomon's sin wasn't polygamy, but that he turned away from God. So polygamy is okay, but turning away from God is not. But the passage very plainly tells us that his many wives turned his heart away. Why? Well, doing what he wanted to do was more important to Solomon than obeying God. And God said not to take many wives. God's will was that no king was to, to take the many wives, and Solomon's polygamy was a serious sin because of it. Another argument, 
they use is that the kings should not choose to multiply wives for themselves. They must wait and let God choose their plural wives for them. Now, neither Solomon nor David did that. Their sin wasn't polygamy itself, but their sin was that how they went about acquiring these many wives. These rationalizations do not agree with the entirety of the biblical text. We quoted Pastor Jermaine Johnson in part one last time, and we want to quote him again right here. Yes, thus Solomon's soul was at risk because of his arbitrary action of polygamy. Furthermore, an examination of Ecclesiastes shows that he decried all these things as vanity in the end. So Solomon's number of wives was just a description, not a prescription. Which means the Bible is describing what's right. happening, not telling you to do what they did uh -huh. by any means. And by the way, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs were both probably written later on in Solomon's lives, hmm. Bible scholars think. And, and so uh, um, Ecclesiastes, of course, says all this is vanity. Proverbs, all through Proverbs, he talks about adult against adultery, and there's always one wife, one wife in view. And, in, in, and it's written his, by Solomon. Yeah. So, and it was written towards the end of his life. So he, it sounds like he might have learned his <laughs> the right way to go. Now, I've seen these these people post lists uh, of Old Testament men who had plural wives, and since God didn't fry them into smoking cinders, their polygamy must have been okay. And the last list I saw had had a total number of 28 Old Testament hmm. men on their list. But since when did someone else's behavior set the standard for our behavior? That's what I'd like to know. God's the one who sets the standard, uh, and and we don't we don't set his 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 standard that he set. Of course, was monogamy. Also, I have a list of forty men. Many of them prophets in the Old Testament who did not practice polygamy. So which list is going to are we going to take into account it, yeah. here? And there's not one single uh, polygamous man listed in the New Testament um, for anybody's list. And now we will go to the New Testament. Almost every pro-polygamy defense will include the ten virgins parable in Matthew 24. Now, I think uh, this is interesting because just yesterday on the, our website, the Polygamy What Love Is This website, somebody made a comment and they brought in Matthew to the 10 virgin really? parable uh, that Jesus was a polygamist and that, that this <laughs> proves it. So first of all, let's say we want to quote what biblicalpolygamy.com said and then we'll go into the parable. The Lord described himself polygnuslessly, too, as Jesus clearly did, for example, in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Now, polygnuslessly is a man <laughs> specifically with many wives. Right. And so they're saying Jesus expressed himself as being a polygonist. Now, um, they're claiming Jesus took that these ten virgin parable was him, his wedding, taking ten brides, ten plural wives. Now, and they use the ten virgin parable as their proof text. Now, he completely distorts the passage and places Jesus as the bridegroom, which only proves, of course, that the writer has no real knowledge of Jesus Christ or of Scripture and is forcing his prejudiced ideas into the uh, interpretation. So, first of all, let's quote the entire parable of the ten virgins, Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Okay, and at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. 
The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here comes the, here, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Okay, first of all, what we need to say to those who use this parable to prove that Jesus was a polygamist, this is a parable. It's not an actual event, okay? That's, that's true. Nuggets of truth are hidden in parables, but no parable can be taken completely literal. Jesus told this parable to illustrate a particular point, and verse 13 tells us <laughs> what that point is. Let's read it again. <laughs> Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour that Jesus will return. So the point of the parable is... Be ready be for Jesus' return. That's the point of the whole parable. It had nothing to do with polygamy. And the ten virgins do not represent plural wives. Want to talk from some Bible dictionaries right now. <laughs> yeah, this is from Strong's Concordance. The word virgin in Strong's Concordance, number 3933, it is defined as maiden, a girl of marriageable age. It is figuratively used to describe being spiritually pure. Okay, so the word can be used as maid, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Maid. Jesus did not clearly describe himself as a polygamist, as this website claims. The virgins in the parable are not brides. They are the bridesmaids, right. friends of the bride. The word translated virgin can correctly be translated maid or maiden, and it's not the same word used for bride. These ten ladies are not brides, they're <laughs> bridesmaids. Now, there's nothing mysterious or difficult to understand about that. Wedding ceremonies in Israel, just like in America, included many people who were involved with the wedding party. We call certain of them bridesmaids. The brides in ancient Israel's weddings also had bridesmaids. And in this parable, some of the bridesmaids were not ready for the wedding. Although they knew the day was coming, five of them were lazy and didn't care enough to get ready. So they were shut out. And Jesus said, that is the explanation of this parable. Verse 13 says so. Be ready. No discerning and honest Bible scholar will interpret this as being Jesus' marriage of ten plural wives. Not even any man's That's marriage <laughs> of ten plural wives. Well, it definitely is a stretch, especially when, when monogamy is the way. And he confirms and affirms that monogamy is the way. So he's going to turn around and marry ten brides? He didn't even marry one, So, which is hard for a lot of people to understand. Now, for those who refuse um, to use any Bible translation other than the King James Version, we might add right here that um, there are other good versions, and the English Standard Version is one of them. It's, it's linguistically very accurate. And we want to read 1 Corinthians 7, 2 from the English Standard Version. Yeah. 
But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, we've talked about these verses yes. many times on different shows and other contexts, uh, but because we've been asked to do this Christian polygamy series, we're using it again. We have found that many of the pro-polygamy websites uh, claim that this verse is misunderstood by those who oppose polygamy. Uh, but after much deep personal study, my own personal study, guys, I have to really you know, yes, you do. grasp this <laughs> right. before I can defend it. Right. And, and so I did a lot of deep digging and deeping and d digging deeply. <laughs> and, and I discovered through studying the, the Greek and Greek scholars and dictionaries and lexicons and the whole thing that there is no way that this verse can legitimately be used to condone and promote polygamy. Now, we're going to quote from an English Standard Version commentary of the Bible on this verse. And helps explain it. Each man, his own wife, and each woman, her own husband, affirms the goodness of monogamous marriage and excludes polygamy, for a shared husband would not be her own husband. Not true. Very simple. Very simple. <laughs> it is. It's so simple. It doesn't need to be complicated. Now, the New Testament language is Greek. From Strong's Bible Dictionary, the, the definition of the Greek word used that each man should have his own wife is not a plural pronoun, but a singular one, himself, herself, and itself. But a different word is used that each woman should have her own husband, we quote. Yeah, it is Strong's number 2398. It is a possessive word, which means one's own, opposed to belonging to another. A person who may be said to belong to one above all others, private, particular, and individual. It denotes ownership, that which one is, him, is himself the owner, as my own, or your own, or his own. So the definition clarifies for us that a woman must have her own husband, singular, and no one else can have him as her husband, too. That's what the word means. It tortures the original New Testament Greek te language to say the woman must have only one husband, but the man can, ha man can have many wives. Mm -hmm. That's what they say. Christian polygamists cannot in any honesty use this passage as proof text for their polygamy. From the ChristianPolygamy.com webpage, Here's we have a wonderful <laughs> quote here. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I try to understand this. <clears throat> it becomes undeniably clear that many, many of the holiest men of God in the scriptures were unrepented polygonists who were never condemned of God for it. That undeniable fact always raises the question, how could this be so? To answer that, it usually leads to the next reasonable question, what does adultery really mean? That important question thus leads to a deeper understanding of the word adultery as it is written in the original languages of the scriptures. And such a comprehensive study yields the true meaning, woman that breaketh wedlock, not man. For many, their jaw begins to drop. <laughs> that newly realized definition totally and logically explains how a man can, in fact, be a polygonist without committing adultery. It reveals clearly how all holy men of God could be polygonists and still not be committing adultery for marrying more than one woman. 
the whole matter starts to make so much sense. <laughs> <laughs> this is past ridiculous. Now, it's interesting that the male gender is once again typically elevated and the female devalued for him to claim that adultery is only applied to a woman and not to a man. Well, first of all, the Bible disagrees with him. We quote from Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. He missed that. Wow, he, he missed, missed that, that one, didn't he? Both the male and the female are guilty of adultery. The word in the New Testament, adultery, is defined like this. Yeah, from Vine's Expository Dictionary, adulterer denotes one who has unlawful intercourse with the spouse of another. Okay, and there's no uh, gender identity here. No. Uh, there's no favoritism with God anyway. So the word adultery in the Old Testament is defined like this. It's a verb meaning to commit adultery. It is used of this physical act, a masculine noun indicating adultery. It describes the act of adultery, the unfaithfulness of one's spouse. So once again, again. we have no gender exclusions, uh, any distinguishing between genders in the definition of the word adultery or adulterer. Now, uh, I have no idea <laughs> what, what dictionary that he was using, uh, but the one that we use to, to bring these definitions is highly recognized and recommended. Uh, at, well, ones, I use more than one dictionary. Yeah. And, and they, were, they were written by, used and written by professionals, some of them with multi-degrees in the biblical language and in ling linguistic studies. Uh, Vine's work words, which Vine's yeah. uh, Old Testament, New Testament, Dictionary and Lexicon, right. Word Studies, Strong's Concordance is, is the, the go-to book that's, for, that's right. for a lot of them. And then there's another one, the Old Testament Word Study and New Testament Word Study by Zodhiates. I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but that is so in-depth and so thick. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> it's just from people who know the language and the culture and the context and, you know, the, the uses of the word according to the context and so on. So I trust their definition of the word adultery over a pro-polygamous <laughs> definition of adultery any day. Now, did you get the sense that he was trying to, uh, that he's a polygamist? Oh, yes, definitely. Oh, he is. Definitely, okay. yeah. And he's uh, justifying it. Mm -hmm, he's justifying circle. it. Uh, all these pro-polygamy websites that I went to, each one is justifying Christian polygamy, that they can right. be born-again Christians and still be obeying God by practicing polygamy. That's their whole idea. Um, That's crazy. <laughs> it, it is. And, and you know, I have, um, I have known people and met people and talked with women who have left Christian polygamy-type groups, and they have been just as abused and just as devalued uh, and have, have been married to just as abusive husband as any Mormon polygamist I have seen. So really it's the practice itself of trying to share wives and... I think have, that's, uh, that's part of it. It's, I mean, you just, it's just innate in our human nature to be jealous or to have jealousies. Shouldn't we? God is jealous of us. If, if, we, well, if we turn to something that's less, lesser than right. he can give us, he says he's a jealous God. Yeah. I just mean that men are men, and if they're practicing it in, as a Christian or a Mormon, it's going to be uh, it's not good. still not good. It, anytime we go against what God has ordained for us, and has, because yeah. he wants the best for us. God True. wants the very best. Yeah. Monogamy is the best. Yeah. Whenever we go against his plan, 
we're going to come across some very <laughs> difficult some, some difficult problems. Well, I can't wait for part three. Okay, well, we're going to do that. Now, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Earl. You know, George Bernard Shaw said, beware of false knowledge. It's more dangerous than ignorance. Well, this is true for those who prejudicially change what the Bible teaches and taking it out of context and teaching damnable heresy is knowledge. They use the Bible with pretend knowledge and read into it what they want it to say instead of understanding God's intended purpose. Peter said that the Bible has everything we need for life and godliness. And, <clears throat> excuse me, it's odd that polygamy is never mentioned as being part of what we need for life and godliness. Our purpose is fulfilled when Whenever someone from polygamy or Mormonism or anyone else, for that matter, stops trusting in myths and turns to Jesus Christ alone for truth, for forgiveness of sin and eternal life, that's really all it's about anyway, because truth matters and only truth matters. Thanks for watching. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.